0: Welcome to That Mom Life. I'm Sarah Jordan, and this week I am super excited to be joined by joined by Vitaly Buford. Now, this one I am super excited about. I have learned throughout the year of doing my podcast that everybody connects to somebody in a different way. And one of my dear friends, Amy Jewell, she messaged me and she said, you have to get Vitaly on your podcast. And I said, okay, tell me more. And then you and I got connected, and I was like, oh my goodness, Vitaly Buford is a person that wears so many different hats. I'm having a hard time keeping up, which is why I cannot wait to give you a second to talk. An executive coach, a trainer, international speaker, and an author. Look at everything that you do. Thank you. (laughs) Now, I can't wait to hear the whole story of how you have come to have so many different jobs. And one of the biggest things I just want to go ahead and get out there, you are featured in the New York Times. You have written a book. Actually, do you have more than one? Just one book. Right now. Okay. What is your book called?
1: It's called "Addicted to Perfect, and it's my memoir.
0: Okay. So it's a memoir. Yep. I cannot wait to get into more of this, but first we need to start where it all began. So Vitaly, where did you grow up?
1: So I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, My parents still live there. And what else do you want to know about me?
0: Any siblings?
1: Yes, so I have um, a sister who is five years younger than me and then I have two older half brothers.
0: Okay, so you have a pretty big family then. Yeah, yeah. Did you like growing up in Huntsville, Alabama?
1: Did I what? Sorry.
0: Did you like growing up in Huntsville, Alabama?
1: You know, yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, You know, I would say it's probably a non-southern, southern southern town. (laughs) And um, yeah, it was a good, it's a good place to
0: raise a family. So at what point did you end up in Kentucky?
1: Yeah, so I went to the University of Georgia. And then I followed a guy that I was dating uh, to Lexington, Kentucky. And he left and I stayed and I've been there 15 years.
0: Don't you love how sometimes your path ends up being being shifted because of you were dating a guy. So you decided to do this.
1: (laughs) I'm super grateful for it.
0: You know what? I followed a guy to the college I went to, and that's how I discovered radio and TV. And it was not my first choice college, but it's my favorite college I've ever gone to. And had I not followed him there, I would never be in the career that I've been in the last 14 years. So all goes to say that, like, things happen for a reason. And it's okay. Of course. So in college, what did you end up studying?
1: So I had a major, I majored in public relations and minored in sociology,
0: public relations and sociology. And did you get involved in those fields before you stepped out? What looks like on your own?
1: Um, yeah. So um, I did. And I was originally an art major in college. <laughs> so Ooh. I wanted to be on the creative side of business, which was, which is what led me to public relations. And so when I got out of college, I worked at a PR firm in Lexington. I did that for three and a half years, was super involved in the community and business development and connection, and then got recruited by a law firm to be in charge of their marketing and business development department. And so I did law firm marketing for about eight years at two different law firms. Then I became an HR director, then a certified coach, and two and a half years ago, started my coaching business.
0: Okay, so you started as art. I have to ask, what type of art? Mixed media. Okay, what does that mean?
1: Like collage, paint, oh. drawing, like all the different mediums. Absolutely. So throughout all of this, is that something you still find as an escape for you? You know, I make art for friends and for gifts, and, you know, it's something that I've been, that I, I would like to be more intentional about.
0: I see. Okay, so you're leading down your professional path. You go from PR to HR, which in my mind at first, based on what you said about creativity would be a rigid adjustment. Was it?
1: Well, so also background is during this time, um, I was struggling with an addiction to Adderall. Okay. And so I started my addiction to Adderall started my senior year of college. I tried it my junior year of college And became hooked Um, but my addiction started and I got my own prescription my senior year of college and that carried on from the age of 21 to 31 so I was able to work ridiculous hours um, which is why I thrived in the law firm environment because I was working ridiculous hours super successful on the outside I was dying on the inside right everyone was like you have the perfect life how do you work that much you're thin you're you know we want your life but on the inside, I was dying, so then I got sober and I was,
0: what was your what was your turning point though because I mean a 10 year long addiction did you even realize in that 10 years that you were addicted to it?
1: A hundred percent. I knew it was a problem like when it started my senior year of college um I knew it was a problem, just the kind of the obsession with it, the need for it. Um, I knew that it was a problem. And I guess near the end of the 10 years, basically Adderall was getting harder and harder to get a hold of. And so I was doctor shopping, which is illegal. And I was working this white collar job. I was in charge of an entire department for a a large law firm. (laughs) And so, you know, again, it was a very private addiction. No one knew about it. And yet I was consumed with making sure, you know, I had my prescription filled or my next prescription. And so at the end of the 10 years before I got sober, you know, it was just getting more difficult. And some doctors found out that I was seeing that I was doctor shopping and they didn't turn me into the police. But that was really one of the things that kind of pushed me to I was like, I can't live this life forever.
0: Did did a doctor ever confront you and ask you if that's what you were doing? Uh, they mailed me
1: letters, but for them to have turned me in probably would have gotten them in trouble.
0: Oh, okay. So two way street here, right? Okay.
1: But they didn't check my my prescription background, and so anyway, so it was. I'm grateful for that. <laughs>
0: but, was there anybody in your personal life that knew you beyond a coworker that knew any idea what was going on?
1: So the guy that I was dating um, did know because I had been caught doctor shopping like two years prior to that and was forced to go off of it. And so I told my boyfriend at the time and he helped me come off of it. But then three months later, I went back out with different doctors like getting my prescriptions from different doctors.
0: Obviously, I know it's an addiction, which is especially with a a medication, you're like physically dependent on it, too. But was there a certain feeling that it gave you that you felt like you were addicted to? Like you said, you went off of it for three months. What was the thing that made you miss it the most to go back?
1: Um, You know, for me, um, I struggled with body image for most of my life. And so it allowed me to be really thin without trying. You know, I was a size two and I could eat whatever I wanted. And I didn't have to exercise. And so it was quote the perfect drug. Plus it also, my work was my identity. And so I thought that is what made me successful, but obviously it isn't what made me successful. <laughs> um, but I thought that it was.
0: So when you say you were working crazy amounts of hours, were you working obviously well over your 40 hours a week?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was working till like 2 AM, seven days a week.
0: Literally. Oh my God. Yeah. What did that do to your, what did your work life do then to your personal life?
1: Um, I mean, I still went out and had fun, like on the weekends. Okay. I I would say Friday and Saturday, I wasn't working until 2am, but I was, I mean, five, I mean, Sunday through Thursday, I was.
0: Good Lord. So at the end of that 10 years, you realize I have to stop. How did you overcome that addiction?
1: So it was interesting. Um, a series of things happened. I had hired this executive coach to speak to my attorneys, and he had um, he had observed me with my team and man- and like leading my team. And he looked at me and he said, "Batali, he's like, are you critical? You know, are you critical of your team?" He's like, I think you're, you're really critical of them. And I got really offended. I was like, you don't know me. Like, you've seen me, you know, I had no awareness at the time. And he goes, no, no, I think that you're critical of your team because you're critical of yourself. And then he told me this phrase, I see in you what I refuse to see in me. Mm-hmm. And that phrase, I had no idea what it meant at the moment, like in that moment in time. And that is the, the phrase that honestly saved my life. So a week later, um, my mother had come to visit me. And she had been drinking. She had, um, She's an alcoholic. And so she had been drinking. And I got really upset with her. And I was like, why can't you get sober? You know, you always do this, blah, blah, blah. And then I stopped in that moment and remembered that phrase. I see in you what I refuse to see in me. And I realized, oh, my goodness, I'm pointing the finger at my mom to get sober. Yet I have been in denial about my addiction and getting sober.
0: Do you think the fact that your mother has an addictive personality like passed on to you?
1: Oh, a million percent. My sister so, is a addict. I mean, yes, it, it most definitely runs in my family.
0: Mm-hmm. That's something that I've had to be careful for, for the same reason, not with my parents, but beyond. Yeah. That it's like, almost, you just sometimes have to rise out of your body and realize there's other stronger forces sometimes driving you a certain way. Yeah. And, I've often said people, even just with relationships, like I see in you what I refuse to see in me, I feel like sometimes people's largest insecurities in relationships, especially like like boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever type of love relationships, I feel like they typically are the most paranoid about the thing that they're most paranoid about themselves.
1: Right. hundred percent. Yeah, we're always projecting. We're all I mean, all of that, yeah. For sure.
0: So how are you able to I mean, I would assume there were side effects from backing off of it, right?
1: Well, I went to rehab. So in that moment, my mom, you know, I see in you what I refuse to see in me. I realized like this has got to stop. Plus, I've gotten letters from doctors. You know, you've been doctor shopping. We're not going to see you anymore. And so it was those two things that kind of came to a head and I ran out of pills. And so I prayed for the very first time. I was like, God, please help me get sober. Like it was the first time in ten years that I'd prayed for that. I had prayed for like another prescription <laughs> or more Adderall, but I'd never prayed for sobriety and literally a week way, a week later, I drove myself to rehab.
0: How was that moment for you? Did you in some way feel relief
1: to finally talk about it so I, the The f- person I first admitted it to was my mom. And, and so I'm really grateful uh, for that space that she created unknowingly for me to, to be honest and vulnerable. Um, but yeah, I've been lying for 10 years. So to be open and honest about it was huge.
0: I can see like after putting it aside and it kind of just being that demon in the closet that you don't want to face, being able to finally confront it and say the words out loud, even before rehab started, had to be at least mentally free.
1: Oh gosh, most definitely.
0: How long were you, did you end up in rehab?
1: So I was in rehab for only two weeks. It was funny. I had to, had to request uh, two weeks off from the law firm that I was working at. And I remember like the day that I got out of rehab, like the COO of the law firm called me and he was like, when are you coming back to work? (laughs) Never. (laughs) And I literally went back to, like, I got out of rehab on a Saturday and went back to work on Monday. But, um, and then I spent three months in outpatient treatment. So I went four nights a week to outpatient treatment for three hours a night
0: do you think that addictions to let's just say adderall and other prescriptions i mean i know they talk about like the opioid crisis and everything else like that but i feel like it is a very unspoken addiction that people have because i mean i i never personally have been on adderall or anything like that but i mean i knew friends all throughout high school and college that'd be like oh i took an adderall so i could study for this this test or whatever and then i always was like huh I wonder how that affects you long term or do you keep doing it? But I feel like it's something that most people maybe don't identify immediately as an addiction.
1: I think that most people probably know, but no one wants to talk about Adderall because it makes you perfect. And and not that perfect's even, I mean, you can't achieve it, but it's, you know, like you think in your head that it makes you perfect. And so no one wants that taken away from them.
0: So... For you, I know you said one of the biggest reasons you liked it because you had poor body image.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Was that something that like long-term, like you said, the outpatient that you had to really come to terms with?
1: Yeah. And I developed a severe eating disorder after I got sober.
0: Mm.
1: Like, so it was a switch from my Adderall addiction to a workout restrictive eating addiction. I mean, I got down to 103 pounds. It was, it was pretty serious.
0: So you traded one addiction for a different type of addiction, right? And it was—I mean, the the
1: eating disorder was just as consuming as the Adderall addiction because I was always like, "When am I going to work out? What am I going to eat?" So it was, and and then when I finally realized, "Oh my goodness!" Like I've you know just kind of played addiction whack-a-mole here. You know, I was really frustrated because I'd spent you know ten years as an Adderall addict, and I'm like, "Here we go, two and a half more years." an eating disorder. Like I need, I need to really heal this and solve this.
0: What was the solution for you to find the healing?
1: So for me, what healed my eating disorder was becoming the guardian of my nephew.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Walk me down this story. You became like full guardian.
1: Yes. So I was two years sober, deep in my eating disorder. And um, my sister is a recovering heroin addict and um, she had lost custody of her son and my parents had full custody. And so my mother was raising him and my dad was traveling for work. And, you know, I told you, as I mentioned, you know, my mother is an alcoholic. And so I realized, and I wasn't close to my nephew because it was too much for me to bear, like just to be like, there was too much drama and chaos with my family and, and so I really had strict boundaries, probably unhealth- unhealthily strict boundaries, where I just really detached from everything because it hurt too much to be involved. But I realized that Bentley, my nephew, uh, my son now, um, was being raised in the same environment that I was being raised. Mm. And I was like, I'm not going to let that happen. How old was he? He was
0: four at the time. Okay, so still unaware of necessarily what was going on then. Right. But it
1: had been through a lot of trauma, like different places, sure. you know, being, I mean, I'm sure he experienced drug deals and all sorts of things. Um, And so I, you know, it just kind of came to me. It was, you know, this divine intervention where I was like, you know what? I, Cause I didn't think anybody would believe that I could be a parent. You know, I was like, I'm a recovering addict, even though I was super successful professionally, I was like, I can't be a parent. And I honestly didn't know if I ever wanted kids. And so, I, you know, I just kind of said it out loud to my grandmother and my aunt. I was like, you know, what if I became Bentley's parent, Bentley's mom? And they both looked at me and they were like, we've been waiting for you to say that for years. And I was like, really? And they were like, yeah, but that's so much of a responsibility. You can't tell someone that they have to come to that conclusion themselves.
0: What was that conversation like with your mom and dad then, since that was essentially you wanting to take him away from them?
1: Right, so I made it about I did not make it about alcohol. that wasn't even a part of the conversation because I knew that if it was about addiction, it was never gonna pan out <laughs> and I, and I also released control the outcome. Right. So I took action, but I released control the outcome. I was like, if the universe, God, my higher power, whatever, thinks that my mom is the best guardian, then so be it. But I'm, I'm still going to pursue it. And so I made it about them being grandparents and me being the parent. And we did a lot of counseling sessions. And literally three and a half months later, um, I bought a house. He moved to Lexington and I was a mom
0: what was the, you said you had not had a chance to really form that relationship with him. So how did that evolve from suddenly not being around him very much to taking him on full time?
1: Um, (laughs) It was a a shock. (laughs) Uh, I, you know, I've gotten a dog in January. So like six months before that, and so, at least the dog had taught me to think about someone other than myself. But, um, you know, it was it was you know a complete change in lifestyle, which is what healed my eating disorder, right? Because I couldn't a I didn't want to model that behavior for him, and b I, I mean, I literally, as a single parent, could not keep up with my lifestyle.
0: When you're when someone else's life depends on yours, right. It is a giant reality check, just in general. I mean, I always tell people, I'm like, oh, once you have kids, it's going to change everything. Everything you do from the way you eat, sleep, shop, think, everything will turn on its head. And as much as I tell you this, until you're in it with your own two feet, you can't describe it. Right. So you go from – so at this point, you said you were single. There was no – you didn't have – there was no boyfriend in the picture or anything like that, right? Yeah. So you were single – Still working a ton, obviously working out a ton, overcoming your own monsters. And then now you've got a little dude in the house. So did I I have not had a chance to talk to somebody in this situation, but I feel like yet again, there are so many people that end up being the caretakers, whether it's for their grandkids, nieces and nephews, they step in. Mm -hmm. Did you feel a different type of maternal instinct just kick in for you?
1: You know, honestly, not... Not in the beginning because I really felt a lot of guilt and I felt Why? I felt unworthy because I felt guilty for um, for like that. I wasn't worthy of claiming the mom role. And I felt that's interesting. I'm like processing this as we're talking. Um, and I also felt guilty because it was like, you know, even though my sister had messed up, I still felt guilty that I was raising her child, like that I was taking something away from her.
0: So did, does your sister still have a role in his life?
1: Um, she does. And she has two other children. She's sober now. Um, so she does, but, um, I monitor it really carefully. Like we have open, I have open conversations with my son about it. He knows like, um, he calls her by her name, not mom. Like I'm mom and that's Devere, my sister. And so, um, I'm just really careful because, you know, like when he sees her, you know, he's reminded of being abandoned. Oh man! You know, when he sees. So he's he's now about. He's eight. He's nine now.
0: Nine. Okay. So he's nine. So you've now he you have been his his parent for
1: five years. Four and a half years. It'll be five in this summer.
0: Does your sister? Is she? happy that you have him and you were able to provide him that home that he needed
1: she is now I mean at first she wasn't because what happened was I think when my parents had custody she was able to kind of play you know kind of just pretend like my parents were babysitting full time Mm -hmm. but then when I got custody you know it was like stuff got really real like oh like I've messed up This is, you know, like, I can't be in denial anymore. And so I would say the first few years, it was, it was really hard. And, um, but we've overcome a lot and, you know, still have work to do, but she is very grateful.
0: That's what I was going to ask in general was, has she come to a place of like, not resenting you for helping the situation, but realizing that it was, it was the best thing for him for the long run?
1: Yeah, I mean I think she's she's get you know there's moments where she probably goes back and forth.
0: Oh, I'm sure, especially cuz if you're not a stranger that is fostering her kid, you're her sister. So it's not like you guys can fully, I mean, you could, but it's a lot harder to fully remove a family member from your life than it is a stranger. Right. And I can only imagine then your parents are stuck in between. Right. <laughs> It's, it's fun when you get to play that dance in between parents and sisters. And of course, parents just want everyone to get along and be one big, happy family. Totally. So do you go to family gatherings with everybody now?
1: We do. And, um, but I have like an expiration of how much time I spend in those, on the, in those events. And I also make sure that I'm around when my son, like when my sister is around.
0: I, I feel like he would have to, and I feel like the older he gets, I feel like he would have more questions. Even
1: yeah, he's asked a lot of questions. He doesn't have as many right now because I think I feel like we've answered a bunch of them. I think with me being a coach and <laughs> talking about stuff really openly and being in, you know re- in recovery um, and always like you know on the self awareness growth journey, probably too much. Um, we're we're a very open household and communicating and talking about things.
0: What was the hardest part about the transition at first?
1: Um, I think that the hardest thing for me was taking things really personally and thinking that he was a reflection of me.
0: His performance.
1: Mm.
0: I mean, it's such a hard situation to be put in. When, like you said, you had kept him at a distance for so long to to protect yourself from the situation. And then you went from protecting yourself from from a distance to putting it all right in front of you. Just you. Right. So, I mean, and then I will flip to this because clearly it's been four and a half years. Do you remember that first moment when you were like, this is going to work. We did the right thing.
1: I always felt that. But I would say I felt truly like a mother like three years in. It took three years.
0: Wow! So right around school age.
1: Yeah. I mean, he was in kindergarten when I we he was in kindergarten when I got him.
0: Okay. So three years in, you had that. Was was there a specific moment where you just thought? I feel it now or was it just kind of like a progression over time
1: it was a it was a progression and I can't remember but I mean there was an exact moment where I was like I really am enjoying being a mom and I feel like a mom and I truly feel love I I think since a lot love was withheld from me as a child I unknowingly did that to him and so it took a lot of awareness and um, getting out of my own way to be able to show him the love that he deserves
0: and myself, right? It's amazing what tiny humans can teach adults. Right have been convinced even in the year of 2020 and i'm like if people would stop and listen to kids outlooks on things and how kids are adapting to change and what nice thing kids are doing for other kids and their parents and strangers and adults and the elderly i'm like if people could think in a more pure brain like a child sometimes i think we'd all end up in a better place
1: oh he completely keeps me grounded he's you know he's oh he's um, so observant and spot on. I mean he really is my own life coach.
0: <laughs> well, he is the best reflection of it considering <laughs> you guys live together and he has watched you grow and change. And I mean he came into your life when he needed him when you needed him the most to help become overcome the second addiction of having an eater, eating disorder and working out too much. Cause I mean, like you said, it was consuming your life just as much and you finally got that necessary, I wouldn't say distraction, but that necessary peace to prevent you from going back down that path.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: So you, you bring him into your home and this was in 2016, correct? Yes. So once you bring him into your home, what happens to your professional life? Because clearly you can't work the way that you were working before having a child.
1: So thankfully I wasn't in the law firm environment. Um, I had switched and I became the HR director at a um, large landscaping company. And the reason I became a HR director is because I wanted to be the COO of a company someday. I didn't know it was going to be my own company, but I was like, I want to be the COO someday. I need to learn HR. And then I became a coach and then here I am. But, um, it was a family run business, a family owned business, a father and two sons, and they like I am grateful to them because I would not have been able to be the mom that I that I was um, without their understanding. And I mean, I had to have a conversation with them about it and tell them, and they were extremely supportive.
0: I feel like finding a company to understand that understands you and adjust to what you're going through is so crucial anymore. I mean, again, back to the year 2020, having somebody that understands what you're going through when you're switching roles and lifestyle changes, it definitely takes a different type of company. And you're right, based on what you're saying about the fast-paced environment of working at a law firm, you needed to change. (laughs) Right, right. So you got into HR and you did start coaching while being HR director, Right, right. When you say coaching, what does that mean?
1: So, um, I would lead like people's like career tracks within the company. I would coach them. I led, um, book clubs on like business books and how we incorporated those concepts into their role in their career. And, um, and they, you know, I was, I was excited about coaching and, you know, I, I, um, I talked to them and I said, you know, I want to coach, but I also feel like I need formal training. So they actually sponsored me to become a certified coach.
0: That's wonderful.
1: Yeah.
0: You did find a good company. That's awesome. Yeah. So incredible. Are you still friends with them today? Yeah. That's wonderful. So you went to become a professional coach. You're doing HR. At what point do you realize you want to write a memoir?
1: So that was what I wanted to do all along. Like I didn't know I was going to start my own business. Like when I got sober, like, I was like, I'm going to write a book and tell my story because no one talks about Adderall addiction. No one talks about, you know, the things that I've been, you know, I've been through, obviously they're personal to me, but you know, similar experiences. And so a book was always a dream of mine. And, um, you know, it was, and I, before I started my business, I hired an agent to sell my book idea. And it just kind of all fell into place.
0: So did you continue working and do do what you were doing while writing this memoir?
1: Yeah. Well, so I had started my own business. So I was an entrepreneur, single parent, writing my book. Yes. Not busy at all. Correct.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did you physically... I've never talked to somebody who's necessarily written their own memoir or book. Did you physically type everything out and then send it to a publisher or was that something where you spoke it and then someone else transcribed it for you?
1: Well, I wrote it. I wrote every word.
0: Was it therapeutic or was it painful to go back down that path again?
1: It was both. It was both triggering and therapeutic. You know, I wrote basically my entire life story. I mean, the first three chapters and the last three chapters were cut and um and and some of and some of the content woven into the book um the relevant pieces but um it was really really um therapeutic for me to write my story and own it because i feel like as humans we minimize our life experience because we think someone else had it worse or you know it's too painful to revisit and and so it was really powerful to tear my, tell my story but also scary right because i was also talking about my mother and her addiction and my sister and her addiction, and. Um, I didn't obviously want to hurt them and so I had to be very thoughtful about what stories I included, but yeah, I actually wrote it in five weeks.
0: Whoa. How many pages are we talking here?
1: Um, I wrote like 350, but it's 200 pages.
0: You wrote it in five weeks. Did you find that you just went into a different headspace to be able to accomplish something like that in such a fast amount of time?
1: Yeah. I'm the kind of person who like, it takes as long as I have. Right. So I had already written two chapters because I had to write two chapters to sell the book. Like a publisher was interested and they were like, we need to see two chapters. So I wrote the two chapters, they accepted it, signed a contract and I kept on putting it off because it was my life story. And I'm a recovering perfectionist, you know, so to write a book was, you know, like I felt a lot of resistance, but I, I like, I believe, I believe that like the bigger, the bigger the resistance, the bigger the dream. And so um, my publisher called me and she was like, if you do not have the book, like manuscript to us by June 28th, like it's not going to come out until 2021. And I was like, okay. And literally that was five weeks. I had five weeks to write it. And that's all I did. Literally. Wait,
0: wait, is, did you write this this year? Or did you write this in 2019 to be released in 2020? What's the time? I wrote, it. I wrote
1: it in 2019.
0: Okay. So what, how did that conversation go with your family when you told them what you were doing? Cause I can, I can see that that could be a very touchy subject.
1: They were very fearful. You know, they didn't know what stories were going to be included or my motivation. And I think they thought it was going to be a lot worse than it actually is in terms of like them. I think they thought it was going to be a tell all about them. And I'm like, no, it's, it's my memoir. Like there are pieces obviously of your story that are relevant to my story, but this is, you know, like I only included stories that, like really showed what I was experiencing and told my story. I didn't just put something. There were several things that I cut out at the last minute that I thought maybe were like a little harmful, um, a little more harmful than I would have liked. So um, I had conversations with them about it. I asked them if they wanted to read the advanced copy. Like I didn't say here it is, but I said, you know, would you like to? And my dad read it and my mother still hasn't.
0: So is your relationship better with your dad than your mother?
1: You know, my relationship is good with both of them. You know, uh, I as much dysfunction as there was, like they have always been, always been supporters of my dreams. Like when I wanted to start my own business, literally as a single parent with no savings, no savings, Sarah, like and one client, I just like made the leap. I mean, I have a very high tolerance for risk. <laughs> I just made the leap. Like I remember calling them and being so scared because I was like, they're not, they're going to say it's a bad idea because I'm raising their grandchild. They're going to be like, what are you doing? What are you doing for health insurance? And my mother was like, no, I mean, I, I forgot my mom was an entrepreneur and she owned a business too. I just, it was a different business. So I just didn't think about it in those terms. Um, but they all, they were fully supportive of me. <laughs>
0: So you have the book getting ready to come out and what did, like you said, you had the five week deadline. I clearly know the end game is that they published it, but what was their initial reaction to your work and getting it done in five weeks?
1: The pub was the publisher's reaction. Yes. So they were, you know, they were, they were like, they were totally good with it. I mean, what really transformed the book was my content editor. Like she worked magic on my book. And so while writing the book was painful, editing it was
0: even more painful. And I edited it last fall, like fall of 2000. Oh Lord, because I mean, again, back to perfectionism, edit time is the time to get it to quote unquote perfect.
1: Well, not even just that, she was like triggering me to go deeper. Oh, that's really what it was. She was like, you haven't gone deep enough on this. And I was like, yeah, I did. (laughs) And she was like, well, you're going to have to go deeper. Like, she was like, you're going to have to paint the picture of your sister much better because otherwise you're going to drop the bomb on the readers that you, have you know, you're raising your nephew and that's, it can't come out of nowhere.
0: Oh, (laughs) I can imagine that it's really hard when writing about your life. Obviously you know how to fill in the blanks Mm -hmm. and. When the reader doesn't have that, I can totally see how it's a much longer writing process to get in all of those details.
1: Yeah. So that was like the going deeper, because that's what the content editor does. Like it's not grammar. Like there was a grammar editor, like a copy editor after that. But the content editor is like, does this make sense? What's the flow? Like she's the one who cut the first and last three chapters and wove a lot of my past, like the first three chapters into my story. She was the one that said, this doesn't make sense, cut it. Or, you know, you've been harping on this story too much like we need to shorten it but the editing was was really intense
0: how long did that process take you
1: three months
0: so double that of what you wrote your book but i also feel like that's still a pretty accelerated timeline is it not
1: it is an accelerated timeline i mean you know it have been percolating for years like i've been talking about it for years and um for me, I read, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic and it was like, you know, a shitty book is better than no book.
0: There you go. <laughs> so what is the title of your book then? I don't think I've actually asked you that.
1: It's called Addicted to Perfect.
0: Did you realize that what that was the overlying theme of a lot of your life was perfectionism while writing?
1: not until I wrote the book. And so when I finished the draft at June 28th or while I was writing it in 2019, I was like, Oh my goodness. Like this is extremely pervasive and I'm not the only one. And so I, that's what I started coaching on.
0: So the, you were trained in coaching, but what you were not coaching that specifically.
1: No, I was coaching on like, you know, like how to elevate your life and just some general like things, inner child work, like, you know, I was a new entrepreneur. I mean, I still am. I'm only two and a half years in, so I'm still a baby entrepreneur. Um, and, and so I just hadn't found my niche yet, which, you know, is, um, which for recovering perfectionists is really hard, right? Cause you want to know everything up right out of the gate. Um, but it was like during that moment after I read the book that I was like, this is, this is my focus. And then in December of last year, I went on a retreat in Peru and I was like, okay, I'm going to own this space. I'm going to call myself the imperfectionist and perfectionism is what is what I teach. Like when people see the word perfection and imperfection, I want them to think Batali.
0: That is such a lofty goal, but one that like I identify with immediately again, when my friend connected me over to you, I know that I way too much strive for perfectionism and also in a way that I try to take on everything myself because I have a fear of things not going right. So I just think if I do them myself, everything will be okay. But then the mental stress that that brings on me and being able to ask people for help and delegate better. I know that, and a lot of that's come from just, for instance, in 2020, when you lose half your staff and you have to take on all the work, you just think that you can always take on the work and you can be the workhorse and you can get it done. But there is a fine line when it's, when do you need to learn how to say help or (laughs) I need more help or no. I mean, no is a very hard word for me, professionally speaking.
1: Yeah, and for me, it was like really looking at perfectionism and the roots because you know the the perfectionism that I was talking about was like is like the deeply rooted perfectionism that is born in your childhood, right, and then reinforced in your school years and then in college and adulthood and relationships and jobs. And I looked at perfectionism as like the symptoms of perfectionism are comparison, you know, people pleasing, external validation, avoiding conflict, um, indecision procrastinating um, imposter syndrome and so these things are perfect and perfection really is what perfection is all about it's externally motivated right so we outsource our self-worth our self-trust our decision-making to everything outside of ourselves and so we're so disconnected from our intuition because we've been looking outside of ourselves for our entire lives
0: I feel like you may have just called me out a little bit on <laughs> a lot of the ways that I uh, have defined myself—not um, necessarily in the most healthy of ways—but the, the, a lot of the things you just said, even like the people pleasing and like avoiding conflict, hundred percent things that I do all of the time. And I often look at other people. I'm like, how can you not care about all of these things? How can you not want who's done this right? How can you just say no as if like they have a bigger issue than I have of being able to always say yes, which is impossible.
1: Right, right. And so then I started developing content, testing it out, doing like online coaching, like group coaching programs for women. I put a like I did a survey on like Are you a perfectionist? And I've had more than 900 people take the survey and the results I have like surprised even me. And this is what I teach. Um, 60% of people are strict perfectionist. 30% are um, mild perfectionists and only 10% of the 900 are imperfectionists. Wow. And so that like shows, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, it's a small, I mean, it's not a small number of, of, of surveys, but for me it was like, okay, like, this is a real thing. People are struggling with it. And so, yeah, like I'm really proud of the content, my method of healing your perfectionism, like identifying those perfectionism patterns that are holding you back, changing your mindset and then taking massive imperfect action to heal them. Right? Because the life that you want, like, we don't get the life we wish for, we get the life we're intentional about. And so if we're you know sick of perfectionism holding us back, we got to be really intentional about changing it because perfectionism, perfectionist go-to is to be critical. We're hypercritical of ourselves. We punish ourselves to success and it becomes a habit. And so you have to change and and create, you have to unlearn those patterns and then um, learn new ones.
0: So how do you, is your coaching sessions, first of all, obviously identifying that people are, that these things are all examples of perfectionism, how do you untrain your brain to do so? Which I realize that is a very possible, you could spend an entire podcast probably talking about that. But in summation, where do you begin with people?
1: So I have people start with curious observation because I I believe curiosity is the cure-all. Perfectionists don't like to be curious because we like to know everything to not know something means we're imperfect. And so when you can become a curious observer of your thoughts, it allows you to not be your thoughts, right? So instead of being like, I feel jealous, Um, I'm such a bad person, I can't believe I feel jealous, why can't I be happy for my friend, I'm such a bad person, you know, I want what they have, you're able to be curious and be like, that's interesting, I wonder why I'm feeling jealous. And so what I do with my clients is I actually have them spend a full week and I have them write down every single limiting belief they have. Every single one. Do
0: you say limiting belief? Yeah. So that's step one. So, I mean, I, I obviously think that this is something that takes a good amount of time for them to first, like, write this down. Step one. And then understand the whys. And then, I mean, it's... If it's taken, let's just say, 20, 30, 40 years to become this way, I would assume it's going to take a decent amount of time to reverse the other direction, too.
1: It does. And the goal is that like perfectionism is still going to crop up. But you the goal is for it to not run your life anymore. Right. For you to have that moment where you want to procrastinate, but you're like, you know what, I'm actually going to take action. Done is better than perfect. You know, to be. To instead of like knowing that conversation, that conflict that you need to deal with is going to be really hard, but doing it anyway, like knowing you're going to grow, and so taking action despite of you know in spite of it, knowing that yes, I really my go to is to be a people pleaser, like I want to ask eight of my friends for advice. That's my go to, but I'm not going to today. I'm going to sit in the discomfort, and so for me, it spent for I mean you know obviously like I'm 38, and so it spent I spent you know, obviously more than three decades, a slave to perfectionism. And so I'm able to really speed it up for people because when you focus just on that area, which is really the one thing that's holding you back. um, And when you're able to laser focus on it, you receive like great results. I mean, I've had, you know, clients leave corporate America and start their business. I've had clients expand. I mean, it's like I've seen like massive results from healing your perfectionism.
0: Do you ever find that some people's perfectionism revolves around specific people in their approval? Like they want to be perfect to receive the validation from whether it's bosses, parents, like as opposed to everyone, but it's very specific people.
1: I think we all like I think most for most people, it's 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 pretty it's typically like specific people like your parents, a group of friends. Um, and at the end, at the end of the day, that is to um, prevent you from, you know, like you're afraid of abandonment. Like that abandonment wound is the core wound, right? Like if I don't make that person happy, they're going to abandon me. If I don't say yes to my friend they're going to abandon me. And so I need to be perfect. I need a people, please.
0: It's such an interesting road that I think that so many people, again, like you said, they don't recognize it as possibly a problem or something that they could have, not even necessarily a problem, but something in their way of achieving A happier life, a more fulfilled life, a less mentally stressful life, maybe less anxiety in their life by identifying and I'm literally talking in the mirror right now with myself because I mean what you're saying, I'm just I'm so thankful that you did write something like this and I'm glad you overcame the oh other people know about this stuff. No, you wrote this down and I'm I'm so glad that you are coaching it too. So you edited your book in the fall of twenty nineteen. Is that correct?
1: Yes. So it was the printer in January and it came out March 30th.
0: So it came out March 30th in the middle of lockdown, yeah. but it was f- even featured in the New York times, correct? No, I, my work has been featured
1: in the New York times. My book featured okay. maybe one of my next books. <laughs>
0: So how is that process going for you so far? I mean, I know you probably couldn't do the typical book release you were hoping for, given the year we were having. How has the reaction been from the release?
1: You know, for me, I'm very grateful. In December, I released my attachment to the outcome of the book. Like I allowed my goal of writing and publishing a book to be enough. So you
0: did it. Right. Now many people
1: can say that they did it. <laughs> right. Instead of being the perfectionist Vitaly, like I have to have these kind of reviews and this kind of media attention, and this kind of book tour and this blah, blah, blah. I was like, you know what? Writing the book is enough. And I'm so grateful. And I had no idea about the pandemic. And then that hit. And I was like, thank God, because if I had put all of my, you know, everything in the book bucket, I would be really struggling right now.
0: For sure. So, I mean, your bucket then changed. Like you said, you weren't doing that type of coaching then, but that is something you've done in 2020.
1: Yes. And I was doing the perfectionism coaching in 2019.
0: Oh, good. Okay, good. Yeah. But that's something that you've been able to probably maintain someone virtually this year then?
1: Yeah. And all my work was already virtual. Like I've had women from all over the world in my programs, which is really cool to see how universal it is. Um so I was already doing everything virtual. Like, it, I, and I love like public speaking is one of my favorite things. So I miss being on stage. So that's like the one change was like speaking at events and all of that. Um, but in terms of like coaching, like I was already doing so much of my coaching virtually via zoom.
0: So you were able to adjust just fine, which is amazing. Yes. So now you are on, you're an entrepreneur. Yep. You are doing coaching as a full-time profession as well. Yep. You're now a published author, which is incredible. Where can people find your book?
1: Yeah, so it's on Audible, it's on Amazon, and I think it's on Bar- at Barnes and Noble too.
0: And if people want to sign up for your coaching classes, which what are the, what, what do you call your coaching classes?
1: So I do one-on-one coaching and I've been really like, I'm doing more like uh, my, I'm taking my perfectionism into the workplace. And so a lot of my work and training is corporate, like helping people heal their perfectionism at work, Mm -hmm. heal the person, right? Heal their profession. And so I do a lot of that and I do one-on-one coaching and I have some groups, but I'm not doing them as much anymore, but definitely reach out to me because, um, there are some coming up in in 2021 and um, definitely have some one-on-one coaching spots available too
0: uh burnout i'm like i'm on your website currently right now and i'm just going oh my gosh <laughs> this is amazing there's other people that are like me who
1: are <laughs> you're not well i mean truly like when i say 90% of people struggle with some form of perfectionism i'm serious 90% of people some form
0: some form or attached maybe to something. I mean, Telly, I, I love that you were willing to, to a overcome, still maintain being a wonderful professional and then taking on the role of being a mother when you could have just as easily said, I'm sure he'll be fine with my parents. Right. That takes a very strong individual to literally say, I will change my life forever right now in this moment. So I have so much um admiration for you doing that in that situation. And then now look at what you've built even in 2020. So thank you so much for joining yeah. me today. I'm so glad that we were able to connect and I think it's wonderful what you've been able to do.
1: Thank you so much. I'm honored to do it.